Well, good afternoon, and we are continuing today our introduction to systematic theology. And we are still looking at the doctrine of Scripture, and in particular, its attributes. And today, we are going to consider the attribute of sufficiency. Well, before we bring Scripture into this, let's consider what we mean first by the word sufficiency. When we say that something is sufficient, we are saying that it is adequate. It is enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. Therefore, we are saying that when we say the Bible is sufficient, we are saying it is adequate to meet our needs. In the Shorter Catechism, this question is asked in question two. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Notice here the unique position that scripture has, that it is the only rule to direct us. And what need do the scriptures meet? Our need to glorify and enjoy God. The next question elaborates a little further. Question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is that the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Our confession goes on to express this attribute of sufficiency beautifully in chapter 1, paragraph 7, where it states, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. So with this attribute of sufficiency declared for us here in our standards, let us now expound upon that a little bit. If you recall, when we looked at the attribute of authority, I outlined it by looking at the source of authority and then the extent. Well, I want to follow that same basic outline here today with this attribute of sufficiency. I want us to consider, one, the source, and two, the extent. So first, let's consider the source. When we say that the scriptures are sufficient, what exactly are we referring to as the source. Now you may be thinking, well, duh, Jason, the source would be the scriptures, right? Well, yes, but let's be more precise. What are we referring to when we say the scriptures? Now here's why I'm asking this question. There are a ton of people walking around today, many who claim to be following Christ, and will even talk about their Bible. But when you really start to dig into their beliefs, you realize that even though they may be carrying around an entire Bible, they have literally chopped off a great deal of it. So just to give you an example of this, recently on Facebook, I was someone had asked a question about uh, self-defense and the use of guns, and they weren't really sure uh, how far we could go with it. They felt like the, the New Testament was not very clear about it, didn't address it specifically. Well, I went on to point out that the Bible does, in fact, address self-defense. In fact, it deals with it very explicitly in Exodus, in one, one place, so 
there's this direct teaching about home intruders and whose blood is on whose hands when death occurs due to self-defense. And how much more does the Bible uh, direct does it need to be? Yet many act like those scriptures don't exist. Well, why? Well, for some, it may be because they haven't read those parts. But I know for a fact that there are some pastors and teachers who have, in fact, read these words, and yet they still act like these words don't exist. Why is that? Well, it's because they have a particular understanding of the Bible as a whole. They have a particular understanding of the relationship between law and grace, the Old Testament with the New Testament, and so on, that restricts these passages and makes them irrelevant. So the problem isn't with the Bible. The problem is with these systems and hermeneutics that are foreign to the Bible, that we in turn force on the Bible and in turn make a great deal of the Bible irrelevant to us today. How many times have you heard, for example, well, that doesn't apply to us today because that's in the Old Testament? Well, that isn't some rule that the Bible itself gives to us. That is a rule invented by men who fail to understand the Bible rightly. And so that's why I asked the question today, what is our source? It's not enough to just say, well, the Bible, because there are many people who tote around a whole Bible but ignore the vast majority of it. The divines here were very careful to define for us the source in relation to this issue of sufficiency. Notice what they say both in the Catechisms and the Confession. Again, question two of the shorter. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Notice the word of God, which is sufficient to direct us and is their only rule to do so, is specifically defined as those scriptures which are contained in the Old and New Testaments. The Reformers here didn't limit our rule of faith to just the New Testament. They weren't red-letter Christians. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but at some point in the past, I don't know when this was, Bible printers started printing the words of Christ in red. And I've actually spoken with people when I used to work in the Christian bookstore who would say that the red letters were the only thing in that Bible that mattered to them. So we call them red letter Christians. But beloved, not only is that wrong, it's actually an attack against Christ himself. Because if you understand the attribute of inspiration as we have already gone over, you understand it rightly, you would understand that the whole Bible are his words. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, for example, says... Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, I don't know what the original intent was behind uh, doing red-letter Bibles, so I won't speculate. But, beloved, the word of Christ extends far beyond just the red ink. The divines here were careful and smart to define that word of God as the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments. And that Old Testament is just as much of a rule to direct us as is the New Testament. Paul reflects this very same thinking in the verse we have already looked at in our series, 2 Timothy 3.16. There he writes, all scripture or every writing is given by inspiration of God or is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for the instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice here, with this issue of sufficiency, 
how Paul combines it with a clear definition of our source. He says all scripture. He doesn't say some. He doesn't just say my letters. He doesn't say the New Testament or just the red letters. All of it is given by inspiration of God. It is all God-breathed and it is all profitable for doctrine, which is what we're to believe concerning God, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And there's your duty, your obligation to God, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Beloved, do you want to be complete? Do you want to be perfected? Want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work? Again, not some good work, but every good work. Then go to the scriptures and go to all of them. Not some, not just the New Testament, not just the red letters, but all. The confession states it this way. The whole, and uh, this is paragraph five, chapter six, um, paragraph six, chapter one. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. Once again, you see this emphasis placed on the sufficiency of scripture combined with a clear definition of what constitutes the scripture, the whole counsel of God. Here, the whole counsel of God is found in either what is expressly set down in scripture. And again, keep in mind, they've already defined what the scriptures were earlier in the uh, confession. In paragraph two, they, they tell us what they mean by Holy Scripture. They wrote, under the name of Holy Scripture or the word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments. And then they go on to list each one of the 66 books that are given by inspiration of God. And they conclude all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So again, there's no partial Bible here. There's no red letter stuff. There's no New Testament only stuff. And then they conclude as part of the whole counsel of God, not only what is explicitly taught in scripture, but also what by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from those same 66 books. Now, we've already touched on logical inferences a bit earlier in our series when we dealt with the attribute of authority. But let me just state here briefly that the divines rightly understood that valid logical deductions from Scripture carry the same weight and authority and are no less true than those explicit teachings of Scripture. And that's because they understood rightly that logical deductions do not add anything but make explicit what is implicit. I like what Dr. Frame says here as he's quoted in Raymond Systematic. He says, quote, Implications do not add anything new in syllogistic argument. It merely rearranges information contained in the premises. It takes what is implicit in the premises and states it explicitly. Thus, when we learn logical implications of sentences, we are learning more and more of what those sentences mean. The conclusion represents part of the meaning of the premises. So in theology, logical deductions set forth the meaning of Scripture. And when it is rightly, or when it is used rightly, logical deduction adds nothing to Scripture. It merely sets forth what is there. Thus, we need not fear any violation of sola scriptura as long as we use logic responsibly. Logic sets forth the meaning of Scripture, end quote. And you know, it's rather comical to see people fight against this idea, but then they'll turn right around and try to explain the meaning of Scripture to you 
by preaching or teaching or whatever, and then expect you to heed their word. You see this with people who, for example, say that, well, we have no need of creeds or confessions. We only need the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. Yet every single one of these people that say this make attempts to explain the meaning of the Bible to you, whether it's to their people in their church, their children, their spouses, or their friends. And they do so in their own words and expect you to believe what they believe. The fact is, we all do it. It's unavoidable. And so the problem is not with making inferences from Scripture. Where you run into problems is when you make false inferences from Scripture. Which leads me to the next phrase of divine stay here in paragraph 5. They said, Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now notice a couple of things here. One, the words unto which are referring back to that which is either expressly set down in scriptures or is inferred from scripture by valid logical deduction. Pay very close attention to the wording here. The divines are, do not reject the use of creeds and confessions with regards to the sufficiency of the scripture. Now you may think they did because of the words, nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations or the traditions of men. But keep in mind that by recognizing the legitimacy of valid logical deductions from the Bible, which we make to explain the meaning of Scripture, they are validating the use of creeds and confessions, because that is all a creed or confession is. It's an attempt to explain the meaning of Scripture, or at least that's what it should be. Yes, there are creeds and confessions that get it wrong, but the fact that some get it wrong doesn't negate the use of those that get it right. And so when they go on to say that nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men, I don't believe that this is just some generic pot shot at creeds and confessions, but rather a shot at creeds and confessions that err in their teaching because they contradict what is explicit or implicit in the word. And you see this in the proof text they use here from Galatians 1, 8, and 9. There Paul writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Notice Paul does not say, if anyone preaches to you, let him be accursed, but rather if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received already, let him be accursed. The problem here that Paul's having is not with preaching or explanation or inferences from Scripture per se. The problem is with preaching and explaining and inferring falsely from Scripture. And this is what I believe the divines meant by traditions of men. Furthermore, Robert Raymond points out, it should be carefully observed that the Westminster Assembly is not here in vain against tradition playing any role in the life of the church. It only opposes tradition being placed on a par with Scripture with respect to authority. Historic Protestantism, and in particular the Reformed Church within Protestantism, had always had its traditions, those traditions coming to expression primarily in the great national creeds of Reformed Protestantism. And I'll even add to that, Calvin based his whole institutes around the Apostles' Creed, the way he outlined it. But the framers of these creeds never regarded them as possessing intrinsic authority so as to bind men's consciences in matters of faith and morals expressly stating that all synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred, 
Therefore, they are not to be made a rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. In some, and this is the key here, only to the degree that their creedal pronouncements are consonant, that is, in harmony or in agreement with the teaching of the Scripture, are they to be regarded as authoritative, and even so, their entire authority is only derived from Scripture itself. But also notice that they rule out new revelations of the Spirit. Again, Raymond writes, this article, which pits the Reformer's doctrine of sola scriptura over against both Rome's claims for its tradition and Anabaptist mysticism, affirms the sufficiency of Holy Scripture properly understood. And he goes on to say, this position assumes, of course, that the revelatory gifts embodied in the living organs of revelation, that is the apostle, the, the prophet, and those who spoke in tongues and their translators, which was so prominent in the life of the first century church, passed out of the life of the church with the completion of the inscripturated canon. Ephesians 2.20 places the apostle and the New Testament prophet in the foundation of the church. And 2 Timothy 3.16 and 70 declares that it is scripture that thoroughly equips the man of God for every good work, end quote. And then there was that quote from Raymond that I included in a previous lesson that I remind you of here again that it must be noted that to the degree that one believes that God still speaks directly to men and women today, either through so-called prophets or these tongue speakers, just to that same degree he is saying that he does not absolutely need the Bible for a word from God, and accordingly he has abandoned the great Reformation principle of sola scriptura. Well, that tackles the source. Let us now briefly look at the extent as we close. When we say that the Bible is adequate and sufficient, many people would give us a hearty amen. Yet when you dig a little deeper with these folks, you realize that they restrict the scope of that sufficiency. In other words, they'll say, oh, I believe the Bible is adequate for you know, spiritual matters, but when it comes to, say, science or politics or anything else, then we have to go somewhere else for truth. Now, obviously, there are many details of life that are in the Bible that simply the Bible just simply does not address. My son was changing the oil on his motorcycle the other day, and you're not going to go to the book of Philippians and find instruction on how to change oil on a motorcycle. And so, yes, there are a lot of things that are not there. But the scope of what the Bible does address is certainly a lot greater than what many people are willing to admit, again, either due to their ignorance or bad hermeneutics. Again, notice the wording of the Reformers in that paragraph 5. They said, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. Notice that they include the word life with salvation and faith, but also notice the words all things necessary. So yes, the divines were not so silly as to suggest that the Bible is going to address every single minute detail of our lives such as battery replacements or oil changes and the rest. But I can tell you this, batteries and oil are not necessary to life. Now, we may think they are because we've become so accustomed to them and built our lives around them, but are they really necessary? And obviously they're not because mankind existed for centuries without them. We need to distinguish between that which is necessary for life versus that which isn't which is something we've all had to think about quite a bit here lately with the coronavirus and lockdowns, haven't we? I mean, what are the essential services that we need? And who are these essential employees? I love something that Joe Moorcraft says here that sums it up nicely. 
He says, quote, for the greater part of the 20th century, most Christians have neglected this truth of the sufficiency of the Bible. It is this neglect that has placed the church in such a weak position today. Yet it is a subject of vital importance. An inerrant Bible that is not an all-sufficient Bible is irrelevant to our life in this world. To say that the Bible is sufficient, to say that the Bible is authoritative on everything about which it speaks, and it speaks about everything. And then he continues further down. Biblical authority is not restricted to spiritual, heavenly, personal, or inward issues. Its authority is life-wide and comprehensive. It gives infallible direction on issues concerning the whole range of human experience. It informs politics, Romans 13, jurisprudence, uh, Deuteronomy 16, the military and warfare, Deuteronomy 20, loans and interests, Exodus 22, marriage, Ephesians 5, education, Deuteronomy 6, ethics, Leviticus 19, crime and punishment, uh, Leviticus 20, labor and management, Deuteronomy 24, funerals, Deuteronomy 14, inflation, Isaiah 1, ecology and environmental concerns, Deuteronomy 22, agriculture, Deuteronomy 22, divorce, Matthew 5, free enterprise, Deuteronomy 28, worship, Psalm 84, property rights, Deuteronomy 19, of course, we've been hearing a lot about that with our pastor's sermon series. Church discipline, Matthew 18. Art and music, 2 Chronicles and Psalms 98. And culture in all its aspects, Genesis 1, 28. The Bible gives us a finished, complete, and divine system of interpretation of God in life to which nothing may be added or subtracted and which can be applied to every fact in the universe. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Biblical revelation is a completed system of truth. End of quote. Well, amen. And to add to that, what I have said before, to the extent that we reject the Bible's sufficiency, is to that same extent to which we reject the inspiration of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture, which in turn is to reject God himself and his sovereign rule over our lives. I mean, how in the world can we affirm the authority, infallibility, and inspiration of Scripture while at the same time limiting that word to just quote-unquote spiritual matters? So let me get this straight. Our all-knowing, omniscient God of truth, he gets it right when he's dealing with spiritual things, but he gets it all messed up when it comes to politics, economics, and education. It's just absurd on the face of it. Again, this is all a package deal. And I hope that fact is really hitting home for you in this series. Well, let's close with a few scriptures um, to have you thinking about the Bible's sufficiency real quickly. Again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Deuteronomy 4, 2 and 12, 32. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add nor take away from it. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are perfect, restoring the soul. Psalm 36.9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And real quickly, just a side note, John Calvin wrote here, there is not a drop of life to be found without him. 
Psalm 19, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, Calvin writes, unless the word of God enlightens a man's path, the whole of their life is enveloped in darkness and obscurity so that they cannot do anything else than miserably wander from the right way. Psalm 119, 128, therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. In Proverbs 35 and 6, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Isaiah 8, 19 and 20, when they say to you, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In 1 John 2, 20 and 27, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and it is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Colossians 2, 3. In whom, Christ, in whom Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he goes on in 3.16 to exhort us to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you because it is the only way to obtain wisdom and knowledge. In 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Notice Peter says everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, are given in the true knowledge of God, which we receive by the word of God. And lastly, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. This passage, which brings special revelation to a close, reminds us one last time that God's word is undivided, complete, and an all-sufficient book. It addresses all of life and is not to be added nor subtracted from. Well, that ends my lesson for today.